In our evening services, if you're visiting with us, we make our way through uh, some of the key teachings that we hold to as a Christian church. And one of them is found in this document called the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, going all the way back to 1563. It's a document that highlights some of the key truths of the Christian faith. And while we don't believe these are Holy Scripture, we believe they faithfully teach uh, what Scripture tells us. And here we're focusing on the Ten Commandments, specifically the Second Commandment. And so I'll say together the question and let us respond with the answer together. So, beloved, what is God's will for us in the second commandment? That we in no way make any image of God, nor worship him in any other way than has been commanded in his word. Question 97. May we then not make any image at all? God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way, although creatures may be portrayed Yet God forbids making or having such images in order to worship them or serve God through them. And our final question, 98. But may not images as books for the unlearned be permitted in churches? No, we should not try to be wiser than God. He wants the Christian community instructed by the lively preaching of his word, not by idols that can't even talk. Well, in order to see this in God's word, let's turn to the word of God, to Exodus chapter 20. You find the Ten Commandments in two different places in the scriptures, from Deuteronomy 5 and Exodus 20. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 7 is our scripture reading and our focus this evening. This is the word of God. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the word of the Lord. Indeed, may God add his blessing to his word this evening. Well, I wonder, have you ever gotten someone the wrong present for Christmas or for someone's birthday or for their anniversary? You know, Christmas is only a few months away. And if you are a smart husband, maybe you ask your wife, honey, what do you want for Christmas? Uh, But if you're not a very smart spouse, you might disregard your wife's requests and simply get her whatever you think is best or whatever you think she might want. And I've learned the hard way that is not the right thing to do, right? If your wife asks for a necklace and you get her a vacuum, she probably won't be very happy. And I did not do that, by the way, Uh, but you get the point. The point is just stick with what's on the list and they'll probably be happy. Well, the same kind of idea connects with worship. When it comes to worship, some people approach this topic like that foolish spouse who thinks, God will accept whatever I think is best in worship as long as I am sincere. 
But we see in the word of God that the Lord does not want us to come up with our endless lifts of what we think is best, but he wants us to worship him according to his word, according to what he desires. You see, the first commandment that we heard last week deals with making sure that we worship the right God, right? The one true God who has revealed himself in his word. But the second commandment deals with worshiping the one true God in the right way. And today we want to answer that question, what does God desire from us in worship? And this is not by any means an exhaustive list. But as we look at the second commandment today, we want to consider three things about worship according to God's desires. The first thing is this. We are to focus on God's word, not on images. That's our first point. We're to focus on God's word, not on images. Now, we live in a culture that is obsessed with the visual, right? Movies these days have incredible special effects, and I'm sure we all enjoy them. You can go to the movies and see movies like Top Gun, right, in the IMAX and get the full experience. And this kind of visual experience finds its way into the church as well. We can fall into thinking in order to help people enjoy worship, we have to create the same kind of visual experience that we have Monday through Saturday at the mall or on Netflix, where are people driven by what our eyes can see. But according to the scriptures, the primary organ of the Christian, this side of heaven is not necessarily the eyes, but the ears. And we consider this from God's word. Isaiah 55, verse 3, Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul shall live. Deuteronomy 4, verse 12, You saw no form on the holy mountain, speaking of Sinai, but you heard the voice of God. Luke chapter 9, verse 35, when Jesus was transfigured, you remember Peter and John heard the voice of God from heaven saying this, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And here in the second commandment, God calls his people not to make carved images because he wants his people to be people of the word. In the Old Testament, God would often rebuke his people for their idolatry because the gods that they fashioned for themselves could not speak or act to help them. The cut up wood that they made into an idol had no voice because it was dead. But God reveals himself as a God who is alive. The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob is a speaking God. And so he calls us to listen to his word. Think about Israel hearing this commandment and where they came from. They came from the land of Egypt, a place of gross idolatry. There were various gods of Egypt, and these gods were often represented in visual form, often in animal form. The god Horus had the head of a falcon. The god Anubis had the head of a jackal, and so on. And so Israel was to not only reject these false gods, but reject this false form of worship. See, the first and the second commandment are connected. And we see this example, actually, in the scriptures, in the account of Jehu from 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 25 through 29. You might remember Jehu was praised by God for cleansing God's people of false gods. He put to death the wicked queen Jezebel, and he destroyed the priest of Baal, and he wiped away Baal worship from the people of Israel. 
he did pretty good. But he worshipped the one true God, Yahweh, in the wrong way. We read this. But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. That is the golden calves that were there in Bethel and in Dan. These golden calves weren't necessarily false gods, but they were false representations of the one true God. You see, he honored the first commandment, didn't he? But he didn't honor the second. We see in the scriptures, we have to not only worship the right God, but we must worship him in the way he desires because he is holy. Now, we may not like be like Israel in our temptation to worship God through golden calves. But as we heard last week, our hearts are still idol factories. And how we reveal how we worship God reveals what we believe about him, his holiness, his goodness, his greatness, as we heard this morning. And we see God wants us to focus on what he reveals in his word. You know, in the Old Testament, it wasn't images per se or artistry that was the issue. You know, God had his people design the tabernacle. He had his people even uh, create angels who would be woven into, you remember, the curtains of the tabernacle. But the key warning is against images of God himself and, moreover, about focusing our attention and our adoration on images. God says in the second commandment, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. God is reminding us in his word that he cannot be likened visually to anything in heaven above or on the earth or under the earth. In other words, don't try to compare God to anything in the realm of creation because he is not like us. He is creator, we're creatures. Children, you might be learning in your children's catechism of of who God is. Does he have a body? And in the, in the catechism, the children says, you know, God is spirit and he does not have a body like man. Now, this might lead us to be asking the important question, right? What about images of Jesus, the incarnate son of God? What about books with pictures of Jesus in them or portraits of Jesus or movies that have an actor that plays Jesus? It's not a question that's controversial, is it? Well, I can remember going to Roman Catholic Mass as a kid, maybe once a year. That was my family upbringing. I was always struck by the statues of Jesus that you would see there. Many of my family members in their homes would have crucifixes on their walls, right? Which is a cross with an image of Jesus on it. You know, we don't want to spiritualize Jesus, right? He is a true man coming in our, who came in our flesh. But there are two reasons I want to highlight for why we should shy away from making not only images of the Son of God, but images of the Trinity as a whole. God the Spirit, God the Father, or God the Son. And when it comes to Jesus, the first reason might seem a little bit heady, but stick with me. The first reason is because of the hypostatic union. Now, what does that mean? That term in theology refers to this, that in the one person of Jesus, there is two natures, God and man. Jesus is the God man. And so we cannot portray his humanity without also portraying the deity of Christ. When we make an image of Jesus Christ, we are making an image of the God man. And you cannot separate his divinity from his humanity. 
even when we look at the scriptures, it doesn't tell us too much about what Jesus looked like. Right? We don't give a lot of physical descriptions, a couple from Isaiah, a couple from the Gospels. And so we have to also be careful about crafting an image of Jesus in our own particular image. Right? Sadly, you see portraits, portraits of Jesus today often portraying him as blue-eyed, blonde hair, white skin. And how easy it is, isn't it, to portray a Jesus in our own image, a Savior that we think is best. I think these kinds of portraits of Jesus are especially bad because they promote a fixation upon a false image of who he is. But we might ask, what about picture books? What about plays that are telling us the message God wants us to hear? Well, that might be a little bit better. A second reason our catechism highlights for why we shouldn't bring about images is because God wants his people to be instructed by the lively preaching of his word, by the clear instruction of his word. Paul says in Galatians 3, verses 1 and 2, these words, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. The word portrayed here is an advertising term. It often referenced a notice that would be put up in the city, sometimes with a picture And Paul is saying this by his preaching. He put up Jesus before the church like a billboard. And what did he preach? Christ and him crucified by his preaching so that the people could see Jesus with the eyes of faith. See, all preachers are to be like painters as the word of God is opened. And the core message of Jesus and him crucified for sinners is heralded and explained and applied to us. We could see more of who he is and also who we are in him. So the catechism highlights how we're not to put our efforts in creating endless images of Jesus, but to put our effort in learning how to tell others about Jesus. Telling us, telling others the good news, as we sang, even in our pre-service song. Because Paul says in Romans 10, verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There is a day when we will see Jesus with our eyes. And I hope as Christians, we are longing for that day when we get to fix our eyes, these actual eyes, not just on Christ by faith, but on him in all of his glory. But right now, 1 Peter 1 says this in verse 8. Though you have not yet seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And so we're to focus our attention on God's word, not on images. Second, we're to focus our attention on what God commands in worship, on what God commands in worship. You know, one of the heart cries of the Reformation was this, Semper Reformanda. And it was a phrase meaning we are always to be reforming according to the word of God as the church. In other words, instead of going up the list and, and, and coming up with whatever we think is best for worship, we're to always come back to God's word and consider what has God told us to do in worship. Right? We even did that this morning as we thought a little bit about instrumentation, what the role of that was in the church. 
Uh, This concept of only doing what God commands in worship is called the regulative principle for worship. It's a reform term, the regulative principle of worship. It might sound fancy, but it simply means this. God regulates our worship by his word. God regulates our worship by his word, by what is explicitly commanded and what is necessarily inferred by his word. And so what has God called us to do? Praise God, he hasn't left us in the dark. He's told us to listen to God's word, to participate in the the sacraments, to fellowship together, to pray, which also includes our singing. We see this list actually in one verse in Acts Acts 2.42. In the first gathering of the New Testament church, we read this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, which is connected to the supper, to fellowship, and to the prayers. And you see in New Testament worship through Paul's letters that the word of God is central. It's what saturates our worship. We read the Bible together. We preach the Bible. We sing the Bible in our songs. We pray the scriptures together. We even get to see the Bible's message in the sacraments of the Lord's Supper, which is visual to us, reminding us of the body and blood of Christ. The Bible is central, beloved, the word, because again, it's God's word that creates faith in us. And it's God's word that strengthens faith in us. God's word is alive. Every time we open this book in worship or in private around the table, beloved, it's a living book because it's the living God who's speaking. Martin Luther said this, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold on me. The Bible is not antique or modern. It is eternal. And there is great freedom, isn't there? And simplicity in this setup that God has given to his church. We don't need to get bogged down in all of the commandments or traditions of man. But we could go back and simply worship God according to his word, which brings life and joy. Why is worshiping God in the right way so important to our Lord? Well, he tells us in the second commandment why. One of the reasons is because God is jealous for his glory. When we hear that word jealousy, sometimes we think of an insecure kind of jealousy of things that don't belong to us, right? We could be jealous of someone's job promotion, jealous of someone's looks, jealous of someone's house, our new car, and often that jealousy arises out of our own insecurity. And that's not what God is like. But when something is yours, It's right to have a healthy kind of jealousy, right? What mother is not jealous for the well-being of her children? What husband or wife is not jealous for the affection of their spouse? Well, God is our covenant Lord, and he is jealous for his people's worship that they might bring him glory because he's worthy of that. But we see that when God's people give themselves to idolatry, when they cheat on God, as it were, God is jealous. He says he punishes idolatry for generations in the second commandment. Our sin and false worship have generational effects. Do you think about that? Spills over to the next generation. God says he visits visits the iniquity of the next generation. 
That word iniquity speaks of the twisted, sinful nature of man, how what is good in us is perverted by sin, including our worship. You think about that in churches, you think about that in households where there is false worship, how that example is passed on to children or to the next generation. They see our sinful worship, our actions, and begin to imitate that. There's two sobering realities in Scripture, two parallel realities that you have to wrestle with. The first one is Ezekiel 16, where God says he holds us accountable for our own particular sin. The soul that sins shall die, says God in Ezekiel 16. But here in the second commandment, in other places, we see this other principle of what we may call corporate solidarity, where God shows that we are interconnected as God's people and as generations within the church. And God, indeed, in the Old Testament, sent his whole covenant people into exile for their iniquity and for their idolatry. God punishes idolatry. But, beloved, see this as well. God is a faithful God who blesses those who worship him rightly, not for hundreds of generations, but notice for thousands. For thousands of generations, God says, of those who love me and who keep my commandments. In other words, God's grace is ready to pour upon those people his covenant blessings for those who love God and for those who fear him, for those who desire to do his will and to do it from their hearts. For those who worship the true God in the right way. But as we come to church and even as Christians, we find ourselves asking the question, how can I find that kind of blessing with God? How can I experience such favor when I do fall short of God's commands? When maybe I come to worship doing the right thing, but maybe it doesn't come from my heart. Lord, forgive me. And this is why our final point is this, beloved. We not only need to focus on the word and not images. We not only need to focus on what God desires or commands, but finally, beloved, we need to focus on Jesus Christ. The reformer John Calvin writes this, men will never worship God with a sincere heart or be roused to fear and obey him with sufficient zeal until they properly understand how much they are indebted to his mercy. As we think about the proper way to worship, we must remember the one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who makes our worship beautiful and acceptable before God. Jesus, again, is God in human flesh. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. And again, in Colossians 2.9, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. You see, only God can make an image of himself. And that is what he has done in Jesus Christ. So much so that Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And when we see the image of God in Christ, it is right to worship him. As we sing during Christmas, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. As with all of God's commandments, beloved, Jesus fulfills this second one perfectly. The covenant at Sinai that Israel broke, Jesus fulfilled by offering to God the worship 
that is pleasing to him. He said in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And again, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Remember the life of Jesus. Even from the earliest of ages, he was in the temple listening to and learning from the word of God. Even that word that testified about himself. He attended the synagogue, even as an adult, you remember, and he learned the scriptures and even grew in the knowledge of God as the one who was true man. And after he entered Jerusalem, before he would go to the cross, the first thing that he did is that he went and he cleansed the temple of God from false worship because worship matters to God. As the scripture said of Jesus, zeal for your house shall consume me. Beloved, after his life of perfect obedience to the Father, he laid down his life for idolaters like me and like you, who so often fall short of God's glorious standards. And he did this so that we might be accepted before our holy God and able to worship him with joy and thanksgiving through Jesus Christ. Jesus came, fulfilled God's word, and he's brought us into a new and glorious covenant. He's indeed the end of the law for righteousness for all who believe. And now, beloved, even this service, he invites us to draw near to the Father through him by his merits. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Beloved, we are to worship the one true God and we are to worship him in the way he desires. And so let us fix our attention upon his word. Let us consider what pleases the Lord in worship. And let us always fix our eyes on that image of God, Jesus Christ, lifting high his glorious name, as we heard this morning, with great joy and thanksgiving and also with great reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Amen. Let's pray. Yet our Lord, our God, you are worthy of worship, You're worthy of praise. You have said in your word that eternal life is to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Lord, we pray that you would indeed sanctify and purify our worship. Let it be pleasing in your sight as we meet with you in your word as well. We pray above all that you would help us to see Jesus with the eyes of faith. Even though we don't see him yet fully, Lord, we confess that we love him. We look forward to the day when that trumpet will sound and when Jesus will come, the dead will be raised imperishable so that together as the church, we might praise God with glorified bodies, beholding the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lord Jesus, come quickly. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.